Idair Italics uh, from the podcast called Turkey. And uh, Stephen, which was my episode 44, introduced me to uh, Anthony. And um, I I kind of, you know, like let it go and let it slide in the, in the sense that, you know, like I didn't want to know, you know, and very know as little of Anthony as, uh, as I could just to, you know, like to get a vibe and a feel as I learned to discover who Anthony is. And actually it was such a rocky and, 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 um, roller coaster of a ride to hear his life story that, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that I got uh, introduced to him and, you know, like I, I enjoyed every minute of my conversation with Anthony. So I'm, I, yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I guess I'm blessed, you know, like to have all these folks and, 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 you know, all these people actually, uh, accepting uh without even knowing me to share the life story and it's uh it's fantastic um quick note on sharing the podcast sharing the facebook page sharing the um the website which hosts my my um my podcast which is anchor and uh, actually give it a review you know like if you see it on your own the, plat the platform on which you're listening to which is either itunes or a google podcast or spotify or stitcher or and so on um if you you know take two minutes take a few seconds actually to just give it a review a rating and um it's always appreciated on top of the fact that it actually helps the indexing so it, it, it kind of climbs up the ranking on which my podcast sits. So uh, without further ado, uh, I, I'm leaving you guys to Anthony. Enjoy. doing well how are you alex i'm doing great i'm doing great you said you were in the suburbs of new jersey right yeah northern new jersey yeah. awesome so as i do on every episode i'm gonna ask you a bit of you know like where does all of this started you know like where you know like what what was your first memory or either you can you, you using or you you know like having uh being in touch with any kind of substance or you being witness of you know like substance uh use so the first witness experience that I had with substance use was actually when I was nine, I think, uh, quite a traumatic scene. I witnessed my mother overdosed on the kitchen floor in my grandmother's house. Oh, so, yeah. So uh, at the time, I had no idea what was going on. I just knew that she was clearly in distress. You know, she was discolored. Uh, and we called for an ambulance. That was in the middle of the night. I heard some something bang, or, and it turned out it was her falling to the floor. And I came downstairs to see what had happened, and uh, that was what I witnessed. Later on, I learned what that was. But my first use of any substance was actually, as most people would guess, alcohol. Um, I was introduced to to beer and hard liquor when I was. Right around 12 years old, so I guess you could say I was a late bloomer. And um, <laughs> when the burning stopped in my stomach and uh, everything settled down, and I just felt like I could finally breathe. And uh, I knew that I was going to do it as often as I could. Right at 13? Yeah. Oh, yeah. At, at, let me just rewind that tape a bit. But, you know, like when, when you... 
<clears throat> when you witness that, um, any siblings in your family? Are you the only child? I have twin sisters, younger. Okay, they're younger. So they, yeah. they, they weren't witness necessarily of that. that um, Not that particular event. They witnessed other ones yeah. later on. And so um, do you remember asking questions and getting any kind of answers? Or do you remember kind of you being curious about what the F happened? You know, like. I, I definitely do. Um, I remember asking questions and I remember getting very vague answers that I could tell um, weren't necessarily the whole truth. And, and I remember receiving them with a bit of skepticism. Um, but at that age, there's not, you just don't know what you don't know. You Absolutely. Know? Was your dad around? Uh, here and there, then and again. Um, but he and my mom, I think that they got married a little bit before they were fully mature. And so they kind of split up earlier on in my sister and I's life. They, they were gone by the time I was probably like five or six. They were pretty much split up. Okay. And um, so these answers came more from your grandma than they, w they came from your That's right, dad. yeah. 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 So I guess, you know, like what kind of child were you, you know, like before that event and, and then after, you know, like in terms of just like getting to school, you know, like, you know, like if, if, if you think back of, you know, like the kind of student you were and, you know, like where you're an introvert, more of an extrovert. I would say that I was a relatively average student. Um, I never did super well in school, but I didn't fall behind either. I will say I, I never really applied myself as much as I could have. Okay. Uh, and I seemed to do well enough just, you know, getting by without studying. Uh, the one thing that I would like to definitely touch on, though, is the feeling of disconnect that I experienced my whole life. Even when I think back to when I was probably eight to 10 years old, uh, I can remember feeling separate from the other students and feeling apart. Uh, always feeling like I just didn't measure up. And I never quite understood that not everybody felt that way, right? Like as a kid, you only know your life and you only know what Absolutely. your experience yes. is. And you envy um, those that looks like they're doing fantastic. So I, I have my classmates who are smiling and they seem to really be enjoying each other's company. And I just don't seem to fit in. And I don't know if that was just internally or if the other kids actually felt that way, but it was real to me. Uh, and I never really felt how other people looked, right? Other people looked like they were having a good time and they were smiling, but internally I did not feel that way. Do you think, you know, like, um, you know, like there's obviously that trauma, but do you think, you know, like of that nine-year-old night event, but. Do you think there were like previous stuff that you either subconsciously recorded that made you the way you were? Uh, I think that things could have exasperated my, my drinking and my drugging. Um, I think that things could have caused for me to feel a little bit more disconnected than maybe I would have. Um, but this is just my belief, and, and I don't know if there's anything to back this in the way of science. For sure. Um, I believe that 
a lot of the folks that I talk to believe this also that it, you know, the disconnect comes from a spiritual malady of sorts. Right? It's, it's like a, a problem with the soul or with the spirit. Um, because I have spoken to countless people who have had very fortunate childhoods and their parents were there and they were, you know, blessed with beautiful lives uh, from the from the start. And they report feeling the same way. Oh, exactly. And, and, and exactly. And their life becomes a mess anyhow. You know, like they're, they're yeah. or they they create or make the mess, you know, like they, they, they're, they're the initiator of that mess, you know, like, so no doubt that, you know, like, but I, I was just thinking about, you know, like, because that night, even though, you know, like it's, it, it sure must be traumatic, but you know, like you, you, that's the Tuesday and by Thursday or Friday, you're nine years old, you know, like you, 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 you don't stay in that mood or that emotion. But I'm pretty sure that, you know, like your brain and your subconscious records that trauma and keeps it kind of in your blood, you know, like that you, you carry this. And there's also the thing where, you know, like you had younger siblings. I'm, I'm the oldest in my family. And there, were, there were a lot of um, sickness in my family. There was muscular dystrophia. And uh, it's in therapy that someone told me that I was most probably bearing the responsibility of... Um, you know, like being the oldest one and, you know, like, so, um, I would assume that you, you carried that quite young, you know, like in, in either defending, protecting, uh, hiding through, not hiding, but, you know, like I would say protect the, the integrity of your younger sisters or whatever, or maybe I'm wrong, but you know, like I'm, I'm, no, I think that you're absolutely right, Alex. Um, and I've read a lot of stuff by some famous psychologists, um, you know, the years that I've been sober, something that I really have taken a liking to. Uh, and, and a lot of the work that's been published in the, in the way of child development, if, if the parents are physically and emotionally unavailable for the child in their first five years of life, um, it's really critical in their development and causes for some trauma. Uh, the abandonment issues that were uh, posed to my sisters and I really caused for some issues down the line, you know, it's, and like you to speak directly to what you just talked about, um, you know, there were mornings when my sisters and I woke up for school and nobody was there. Nobody was home. And I, I, you know, I got my sisters ready and we walked to school. Yeah. And you probably would find answers to where's mom and, you know, like just to make sure that it doesn't look like the situation it really is, you know, because you were probably panicking yourself or being worried yourself. But in front of your sister, you're just like, nah, you know, like she's probably gone for work or whatever, you know, like find excuses for her, her absence, Absolutely. you know, so, yeah. and it's, 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 uh, you know, like that way is something that, you know, like you don't realize until later, you know, like you were carrying that weight of, you know, like just either hiding or, or sugarcoating the truth and, you know, like making this much better. So you don't want to share that trauma with, with your, with your siblings, you know, like you, you, you don't want them to be bearing this as you do, you know? So it's just, uh, yeah, it's a shitty situation. <laughs> Let's call it that way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shitty situation. And, and to some degree, I think that what it did over the years subconsciously was made me think 
that I was the reason why, because for a young child, their parents are effectively God, right? Without their parents, they'll die. Flawless. You know, um, and if your parents leave or don't want to be around you, well, you think to yourself, well, are the gods crazy? Yep. Or is there something wrong with me? Yeah. And obviously the gods can't be crazy. So, you know, naturally you think that there's something wrong with me. That's why they left. And so no wonder why when you take that first drink and feel whatever you felt, if it was different than your daily routine, let's call it that way, it must have been just like 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 the drink of the gods, you know, like you know, <laughs> no no pun, but you know, like just holy shit. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like that just, drink it it did for me what I couldn't do for myself, man, and it made me feel connected, you know, it made everything all right and it made me feel like I was part of a community. You know, the guys I was drinking with that day, they were a little bit older and uh it seemed like everything just fell into place perfectly. Like the universe just aligned that night when I had that drink. What's the context of that drink? You know, like, you know, cause it's a party or, you know, something, it was just a couple of guys and I, and we went on a fishing expedition uh, with one of my friend's fathers. And I remember he was, he was probably halfway tipsy. And he said, if we went and got him uh, the beer from the truck and brought it over to the boat, that he would give us all a beer. And, uh, so we did that, and I remember my friends like spitting the beer out. They're like, "This is disgusting," and I knew as soon as I felt the effects, I was like, "This is this. I don't care how bad it tastes. I, I'll drink uh, rat poison if it's going to make me feel this way." You yeah. know, it was the best thing I ever experienced. And um, what was it at home? Was it drugs or alcohol? Uh, drugs. 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 Yeah. So so. Yeah, so so there weren't much booze at home. No, not particularly. Okay, so you know, like so you, you like a drunk uncle that's almost legendary. You didn't have that really. Well, <laughs> that we did actually have okay. that. Um, <laughs> yeah, my my mother's brother, um, who is currently still struggling, um, he drank a lot, and he took on like an alter ego when he drank. So I knew that drinking had its dangers even early on, but I wasn't willing to I wasn't willing to give up that feeling. When I felt how good it was, I was like, well, you know, I won't get that crazy with it, but I'm going to manage it well enough so I can reap the benefits of, you know, the the feeling I get when I drink. Yeah, grab the best and leave the worst. Yeah, absolutely. Which never uh, end up the way we want it. <laughs> No, I wasn't able to manage like I thought I would. <laughs> so, um, I guess 13, you just started high school? Yes. And w that was also uh, a difficult time for me. When I was 13, ironically enough, I was hit by a drunk driver uh, crossing the street. I was on my skateboard, and a drunk driver went through a red light, and she hit me and broke all the bones in both of my legs from the kneecaps down. And um, I, w I was hospitalized for about nine months. Had to learn how to walk again. I was in a coma for just about a week. Um, and obviously, there was a lot of trauma that followed that, uh, physical and mental. And you kicked up, you kicked off high school in those conditions. Yes. So, and, 
where you wanted to be, you know, like almost like a, as close to the wall to wallpaper, you become that guy which has like two broken legs, either on on, on a wheelchair or you know like whatever, and so you, you know like you you can't be anonymous really. There was no way to escape. Uh, children were like my classmates and the whole cohort of people in my grade would come to my house regularly to try to make me feel better. And I just felt super overwhelmed and flustered by the fact that like, I couldn't really get any alone time to just do what I wanted to do, which at that point was just feel decent and, and take comfort in a drink. Already? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so even like drinking alone and, you know, like it, it wasn't for a social really like early i would have done it socially that that was fine but i would have just as well done it by myself uh if it was available okay so so by the time you got hit you had already took in your first drink oh yeah so you knew <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you knew that painkiller oh uh, yeah um and strangely enough i did not really like the painkillers at first uh later on in my story they became probably the most prevalent drug i ever did but at first it was i was concerned with drinking uh and smoking pot that's all i wanted to do even when i was released they gave me a prescription for painkillers i wasn't interested and i just went back to drinking and smoking pot did um Did your, your grade took a hit from that? I actually was pulled out of school for the whole year. Okay, uh, after that accident. Yeah, well, after the accident, things declined rapidly. Um, my social uh, interactions went down. My family relations went down quickly. At that point, I was living with my father in Brick Township, New Jersey. Um, I wanted to drink every day at that point because I felt like I had been robbed. I wasn't able to walk well. I wanted to play sports, um, and I had played sports earlier on in my life, and I was interested in football. I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore, and I felt like my life had just been stolen from me. All of my ambition was taken away with that accident. Um, so I turned to the drink more than ever for comfort and my father pretty much gave me an ultimatum and said, listen, either stop drinking, stop, stop the crap. You know, your little sisters live here. They shouldn't be subject to coming home and you're drunk every day or get out. And, uh, I, I left in a hurry too. I, there was nothing that was going to stop me How old were you? at that point. 14. Okay, so you leave home, nowhere to go, or you had like an idea? I had a, I had a group of friends that were doing the same thing that I was doing, um, and they pretty much had a, a house that was open for me to stay at because their parents were working in New York at the time, so they were rarely home. And I, I stayed there for a couple of weeks, and then their parents found out, and they were like, whatever the kids got nowhere to go just let them stay here they, they were decent decent parents they let me stay there um but 
because nobody was home to supervise us, we didn't go to school. <laughs> we didn't do anything except for drink and get high. For sure. You're 14, for God's sake. I mean, like, I, I yeah. wouldn't either, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> it was like paradise, you know, exactly. at that time. Yeah. Exactly. So almost drunk every day, just mm -hmm. like, all, you know, like not quitting officially school, but I guess school quits you. So what happened was um, I was on, I don't know if you guys have in Canada, we have free and reduced lunch um, for less fortunate families. Okay. And uh, I was on the free lunch program. So I would sleep in till about 10 o'clock or so at my friend's house. We would wake up, we would, you know, smoke a joint, drink, whatever the day had for us. And then we would walk to the high school, get free lunch, and then leave. And we did that every day for probably six months or so, five months. And I think the school started to catch on. And eventually they, they caught me doing that. And then they caught me with ecstasy pills. And um, after they caught me with the ecstasy pills, they asked that I would leave the school and never come back. And that's what I did. Okay, so you're 14 and a half. You're uh, by the but no, by the time I got kicked out of school, excuse me, I should have mentioned this. By the time I got kicked out of school, I was probably 16. Okay, it was like my 10th grade year. So, well, not much better, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but so you're 16, you're you're almost free as a bird, meaning that you know, like you're living in, in paradise. Uh, yeah. drunk or stoned to the gills almost on a daily basis, uh, kicked out of school. What happens? You know, like, the, you know, like, what's your, do you have any, you know, you know, like, it seems like an odd question, but do you have any goals at that point or is just party all day? And my goals actually included basic necessities, uh, acquiring food, um, acquiring like, the means of living, just money for clothes, things like that. And then partying pretty much always took number one priority. Um, yeah. But outside of that, yeah, it was just trying to get money to order pizza, whatever it was for that day. And I didn't really have any goals. And I, I didn't at that point have anybody at all that I looked up to except for drug dealers. Because I was like, if I could do that successfully, then I'll be able to hang out all day and live, you know, by decent standards and have all the drugs that I want. And that was my next question. Where did you find the money at the time? So initially I did sell drugs a lot. Um, the problem is when you, when you do drugs a lot, <laughs> yeah. you tend to use your own supply more You're than your you best should. customer. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so that was not sustainable. What was sustainable was doing petty crime uh, around town, and I got caught up in a string of thefts and robberies, and you know we'll probably get to that at some point. But my addiction took me to the point where I, I, I think I stole from every single person that I knew, every single person. Eventually, I got kicked out of the house where I was staying, and I had nowhere to go at all, and. Um, the only person that would open their doors to me was my grandmother in North Jersey in Morristown. 
and so I moved up to Morristown. By this point, I had gotten addicted to painkillers and opioids, and I suppose that we we should talk about that and how that happened because I, I kind sure. of skipped skipped over a major fragment of my life. Please. Um, when I was eighteen, when I you know I went from the time I was fourteen to eighteen, just running around the streets, being a little snotty-nosed bad kid, stealing from everybody that I could, manipulating, lying, um, just just generally being bad. Um, when I was eighteen, I received a check for sixty thousand dollars for my car accident that I was in. Wow. I had no idea what to do with it, Alex, at all. I had, sure. I definitely didn't have a financial advisor. <laughs> Yeah. Or if you had, he wasn't that good. It was called a drug dealer. And yeah, couldn't exactly. Find, couldn't find great ways for you to spend that. <laughs> and so originally I did, in fact, uh, sell a decent amount of, of drugs and, and was doing relatively well. I would say I probably got up to close to $80,000 in my bank account from selling stuff. Um, and all the while I was using, but it hadn't taken severe proportions yet of my money i i had uh i had rented a a two-story apartment on the water in tom's river in new jersey it was really nice i had wave runners and i had like two cars a motorcycle um i was you know throwing parties regularly it was a really cool time or so i thought uh, and I thought that the money would make me happy. It didn't. Um, and then one day, it was told to me by a friend that I have pretty severe injuries and that I would be able to have a script for OxyContin written to me if I went and visited a pain management doctor. And so I did. And I went to the pain management doctor and they gave me an ungodly amount of pills. I sold all of them, and I, I did that for a few months and made pretty good money. And then there was a time when I wasn't able to get any of my drug of choice, um, and there was no there was no weed around, and drinking just wasn't doing it by itself anymore. So I, I considered taking an oxycontin, and, and after I did so, I realized that this was like the best feeling. And I understood why everybody was paying so much money for these pills. Within six months of taking that Oxycontin, I was homeless. I spent $80,000 right down the drain on pills and, you know, everything else. Um, and that's when I moved up to, up to Morristown with my grandmother. And I guess that. That that first bill just opens up the flood of, I mean, it goes from weed alcohol to that oxycotton to everything that just gets you high. Percocets, Vicodin, oxycodone. Um, you know, a lot of people. I don't know what you guys call them up by you, but they go by blues here. Okay, you know, Roxy's. It's it's um. I'm not I'm not a specialist in that field, let's be yeah. honest. <laughs> so I wouldn't tell, but all of the stuff that you named, you know, like the oxycotton, the the uh, Percocet, 
all of that is is known for you know like for pharmaco addict or pharma addict um mm -hmm. they're they're well known you know, we're not hit as hard as far as i can tell we're not hit as hard at the the opioid epidemics that that you seem mm -hmm. to be in, in you know like south of the border um but all of what you named are stuff that you know like i've heard quite a lot and um and and there's there's still like the medical i was talking about that like last last time i recorded that you know like our medical field is still seems to be completely unaware of the repercussion of that you know like even mm -hmm. 15 years ago i went to my doctor you know like my the family doctor and told him that i was fed up with drinking and smoking weed and um he actually prescribed an opioid and i was like what's the answer to that you know so what you're telling me is that you know like by just knocking me out i'm gonna stop using is that you know like that <laughs> like the is that what your medical theory is you know like really you know like so so i never took the prescription and thank god you know like i was blessed with kind of like just enlightenment i guess you know because i remember calling a friend and her father was actually using that uh, which is called ativan so i don't know if ativan i i don't know anyways it's it's like a derivative of morphine and uh i remember calling the my friend and she's like what's your prescription because her father was using a lot of it and i'm like what's the prescription like and i tell her kind of the like the dosage mm -hmm. and she's like fuck you know like your doctor wants to knock you out you know and i'm <laughs> like okay and uh so i never i never executed another prescription and i think i'm just i'm i'm, I'm actually thankful that i didn't because my guess is that i would have most probably love it you know so yeah yeah it's uh it's one of the best feelings in the world you know until it's not <laughs> exactly so by 18 you 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 kind of run back to your grandma um you you've spent all of I, that i money. go back home so you're, you're uh, to my grandmother but by this point i have a pretty serious still there? Um, opioid addiction and the nice thing about northern new jersey is no matter where you are you're about 15 20 minutes away from north or patterson i don't know if you're familiar with either of those cities um they are flooded with drugs and heroin is readily accessible for about one or two dollars a bag or at least it was before i got sober um, you know, six years ago. And I was introduced to heroin for $2 a bag at that time. And I thought that that was the greatest thing ever. And so yeah. that's wild. Yeah, I was at my grandmother's. And um, for a long time, I asked her for money and I, I stole from her and I did whatever I had to do to get the drug, uh, manipulated her. And there came a time when she told me that she was not going to give me any money. Um, so I went out and I had to seek out money. And the best way I knew how was just take from people that looked uh, vulnerable. And I, uh, I saw an older man at an ATM here in Morristown. And the ATM was outside of the bank. Like you could just walk up to it from your car. And uh, he was withdrawing. A yeah. decent amount of cash, by my estimation at that time, it seemed to be about two hundred dollars or so. And I, I ran up and I, I grabbed the money while he was trying to put it into his wallet. And he fell over and kind of hit his hand 
on the, the sidewalk and started bleeding. And uh, some bank employees saw this all happening, came outside to confront me. I started running, obviously. Uh, within no time, there was SWAT chasing me, and they had shut down all the schools. And the gentleman who I stole from uh, told the cops that I had a gun, which was untrue. Um, but nobody likes to admit that they have just been robbed. You know, it does. It's not very manly, and I get that. I wouldn't want to admit that either. Um, yeah. Long story short, I, I went to yeah. jail for that. After some time in jail. I actually, again, manipulated my grandmother into basically putting her house up as collateral for my bail to get me out of jail. I told her that by this time I, I was sober six months in jail and um, I could be, I was, I, I mean, I wasn't necessarily was sober of mine, but I had abstained from taking drugs the whole time because I was in jail uh, yeah. and I was able to formulate sentences well enough that she believed me. And, uh, she did, you know, she, she trusted, she entrusted her house on the line for my bail. And I, my, my thought was, okay, I had never really gotten into that much trouble when I was drinking. Uh, and I could probably manage well if I just stay away from the opiates. So I came home and, uh, first day I was home, I drank. And within a couple of days, my inhibitions were low. I wasn't really, you know, I was drunk. I was like, ah, whatever, I'll take a bike and who gives a shit, you know? And, and I did that. And within three weeks, I was arrested yeah. for stealing some phones, uh, at a, at a Rite Aid pharmacy here in, in Morristown. And this time the judge just thought that I would be totally unreasonable to let me go home after my string of robberies and, uh, gave me a no bail warrant which means that I was going to sit until the case had concluded. And that's exactly what I did. I, I, I tend to ask that question, but do you have memories of the first seeds of you either waking up hungover or, or any flash of kind of decency of, in your mind of thinking that this couldn't be the rest of what you re the rest of your life would look like. Do you have any memories of that? You know, like, cause I guess, you know, like you, you, you know, like by, by that time you've eaten, you've eaten your share of shit already, you know, like, so, so <laughs> you know, my guess is that pretty soon in that timeline, if it hadn't already happened, you know, like they are those first few seeds of, like I said, you know, like you wake up and you're like, what the fuck, you know, like that can't be my life, you know, like that can't be really how the rest of my life will look like. I don't want to uh, mislead you. Uh, there were times, of course, throughout the nine years that I was using and drinking that um, I thought to myself, like, I really need to cut the shit. <laughs> you know, when your drug dealer starts telling you, like, kid, you got a problem. <laughs> Maybe you should slow down. <laughs> you might want to consider what he's saying. You know what I mean? He's turning away his own customer because he sees the problem. Um, so I, there were periods that I did try to stop. You know, um, I took on physical fitness, uh, or at least I tried to as a means to recover 
I went to therapy. I was prescribed like sleeping medication. I just tried to isolate. I thought if I locked myself inside and didn't talk to anybody that maybe, you know, I'd be able to get off the stuff. Um, none of that ever worked for me. And so it led me up to that point in jail where I was held without bail. Um, and I, I, I said some words that were less than friendly to one of the corrections officers. And um, they put me in solitary confinement. And I don't know how familiar you are with solitary confinement, okay. Alex, but okay. Um, and just for any of your listeners, where I was housed in Morris County Jail, it's a maximum security, super maximum security facility. It's state of the art. If you are put into solitary confinement, that means that you will be in your cell by yourself for 23 hours and 45 minutes per day. I, I didn't have any reading material and I didn't have anybody to write. Um, that nobody would write me back. And so you get released from yourself for 15 minutes a day to either take a shower or read the newspaper and that's it. Uh, the only other way that you could potentially get out of your cells if you have court or if your lawyer comes to see you. And one of those days, my lawyer did in fact come to see me and made me aware that, you know, the prosecutor's office was willing to give me a plea deal. And I was very eager to hear what this deal was. I was dope sick at this point. I was about 128 pounds. Um, he told me that the plea deal was 15 years in state prison. <laughs> uh, with a no early release act, which is a, a, a thing in, in New Jersey that means you automatically have to serve 85% of your time before you're eligible for parole. So that means that I would have had to have done like 13, 13 years and change. Um, now, mind you, when I got locked up, I was 22 years old. And the thing was, Alex... I, well, I told him I definitely wasn't taking that deal, and I was almost offended that he even at, like asked me if I wanted to consider it. But after I went back to my cell, I was sitting there, and I, I reviewed my life up until this point. And the common pattern was I could not stop getting high. I could not stop using substances. And it wasn't even so much the prison time or the thought of the prison time that scared me. The thought that, the thought that really scared me was even if they were to release me today. You'd be back. I, I'd be back because I couldn't stop doing what I was doing. So I, uh, I looked at the sheets and um, I started to think about how I could configure the sheet and turn it into a noose and uh, tie it up to the sprinkler system on, on top of the sink. And just as I started to grab the sheet, one of the corrections officers was walking by to do his, you know, hour, hourly count and knocked on my door. And with that knock, like a sense of some type of conviction came over me that like, it's going to be okay. Just turn over whatever it is you think that you're whatever power you think you have, just relinquish it right now. And I don't know if I was hallucinating from the withdrawal. You know, I drank a lot, so I, I did have delirium tremors. 
um, as well as the opiate withdrawal. But a sense came over me that everything was going to be okay. And so it was. It was. And to to kind of give you the abridged version of what happened, in 2013, New Jersey made it possible for uh, individuals with robbery charges to get drug court with the judges at the judge's discretion. Um, I went to court. They gave me six years with 85%. I signed that deal, and they told me that I could argue for drug court at my sentencing and that it would be up to the judge as to whether or not I would get the six years or the drug court. But I had already signed for the six years, so there was no negotiating that if he said no drug court. The day of sentencing, I get brought to the courthouse. My lawyer comes downstairs. He tells me that the victim from my robbery case is upstairs, and he's going to testify. That's never a good thing. <laughs> my lawyer, he told me, he was he was forward with me. He said, listen, I've never seen this work out in the defendant's favor. <laughs> um, so at this point, I'm just scared shitless, man. And I think I'm going away for six years. I think I was 23 by that point. I've been sitting in jail for like a year. I go up to the courtroom and uh, I say my little piece. And I was so nervous that I couldn't even tell you what I said. I think I just muttered a bunch of times. I'm sorry. Or, I don't know what I was doing. I, I apologize. Like just, just kept saying that. The prosecutor said that it would be preposterous to release me to the street, that I was just a menace to society and all of these other things. And he was right. You know, I won't argue it like I was a menace to society and it probably would have been preposterous by anybody's metrics to release me. And then the judge asked the victim in the case to stand up and say what he would like to say. And he stands up and he starts by telling the court that he'll never again be able to use an ATM in the bank without the fear that he or one of his family members going to a bank may have the same type of difficulties. And, you know, it's, he's forever scarred. And the judge is looking at me like, yeah, you're about to get yeah. smoked. <laughs> and then the victim turns it all around. And he's like, but, Your Honor, I'm a, a chaplain in the New Jersey State Prison System. And every single day I see young men get stuck in the vicious system because of their drug addiction. If there's any chance that the drug court program will help this young man, please afford him the opportunity to take it. Wow. I can't like I can't even tell you, Alex, like I still get the chills when I talk sure. about that because it was it was just pure grace. You know, it was like my first ex spiritual experience that I ever had. Um I looked back at him and I was just amazed and I could not believe what he had just said. Um, and he was, you know, somebody who really walked, walked the walk, you know, he, he believed and he still does in forgiveness. And because of that, I got drug court. I was sent to a long-term residential rehab and I never looked back, man. God damn it. That's crazy. Have you spoken yeah. to that guy after that? I have not because there was a no contact order, as there often is with these type okay. of proceedings. But I, I will tell you, I wrote a letter to him, a very long letter. And you want to hear something really cool. 
I wrote this letter to him and I didn't know if I would ever have the opportunity to give it to him because of the no contact order. But I started working at a recovery center here in Morris County. And one of my duties is to go into the very jail where I was housed uh, and work with the population in there uh, to reduce recidivism and just offer them peer support as somebody who's been in there and gone through what they've, they're going through. When I was going through my background check with the jail, they knew that I had a background. Obviously, I'd been housed there. But the one issue that they said was I had a problem with one of the volunteers that volunteers there. And I said, no, I did. And I never had a problem when I was here with any volunteer. Like, I went to all the groups, and I never had a problem with any of them. And he's like, no, no, not while you were here. But there's a chaplain here that you committed offense against on the street. So it was the man that I had robbed was actually volunteering at the jail where I'm now working. Um, and I asked the corporal who did my background check, I said, Corporal, can I give you this letter to give to that man? And he explained to me that he would have to read it and everything and, and give it to the warden first so that they could review it. But he that did, in fact, happen. Wow. So is that recent yeah. or, or you, you've had... Yeah, that that was as recent as last week, oh, actually. <laughs> last Thursday, yeah. So you you end up in that long term therapy. How did it go? It was uh to be totally candid with you, it was it was a little rough, man. It was a little rough. It was I don't know if if you've heard of Atlantic City, the, um, the city, the the next yeah. city of sin. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, the place where I went for six months was in the middle of Atlantic city and it wasn't on the strip. <laughs> and, uh, there was constant temptation. You know, most of the folk that were there were either from the department of correction, you know, they had just come from prison or they were being released from jail. And, you know, you've got a, a mix of personalities in there and not everybody's happy to yeah. be there, you know? So it was a little bit rough, but it did, it did give me the opportunity to learn about the disease of addiction. Um, and it, it gave me an idea of what some of the tools were that I could use when I was released. And they plant like a new set of seeds, you know, which, which makes yeah. any kind of using for those that relapse, you know, like uh, will, will testify that it never tastes the same after that, you know, like <laughs> because yeah. you can't unknow something, you know? So, um, so my guess is that you discovered, you know, like the, like the foundation of, um, rebuilding or kind of relearn or learn how to live actually. Yeah. There were a few counselors there, um, that were in recovery themselves and they told me what their life was like and how they used to use. And I was like, how can you? Be enjoying life so much if you were actually like me i just didn't think that was possible and the more we spoke the more i understood that like there was a life to be had for me in recovery if i would just you know take certain steps in the right direction and they're the ones who kind of point it that way how long was that therapy uh about six and months so by the time you leave in what state are you? 
well, again, I'll be totally honest, Alex. Uh, I was befuddled. I was very confused and, and just like lost. Scared? Uh, very scared. Very scared. I had never been, I had never been sober on the street before. I, I thought that, you know, I was going to be released and like, you know, history shows every time I've been on the street, <laughs> I've yeah. gotten high. And I, I wasn't sure that this was going to be any different. And so from there, I was released to uh, a homeless shelter because I had totally ruined the relationships with my family members, uh, including my grandmother. And I went to a homeless shelter. And from there, I had to build everything, everything. I had, I think I had like $13 and four pairs of clothes or something like that. And I was on Morse County Drug Court, which is an intensive supervision um, it's an intensive type of probation where you're required to go there two times a week. You have to go to court once a week. You have to go to intensive outpatient, which is three times a week for three hours a day, and also get a job and save money and try to get out of this homeless shelter that I'm in. Just that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So just that. Is, is, um, uh, is reinsertion something that's tough you know because i'm hearing that here it's you know like it's for someone that checks the you know like do you have like a criminal case or you know like whatever the reinsertion is kind of a major obstacle in just getting hired um absolutely there's no question about that um i actually had landed a few jobs that were like very very cushy careers that i could have done well for myself and I was not able to secure the job because of my background and I was always forthright with them and told them from the beginning and they, you know, they tried to do what they could do, but policy wouldn't allow for it, you know, and I get that. They don't want to be liable, man. If, if, if you're working with a certain population, I can't go work with kids and I have two felon, sure. uh, two yeah. violent felonies. You know what I mean? Although I love kids and like, I would never do anything to hurt one. I can't blame a school for not hiring oh, me. For sure. And you know, like as a parent, without knowing the people in the person, you know, like it's, it's, you know, like it's impossible. Sure. You know, like, and I, I totally get it as well. It's just that, you know, like I, when I'm, you know, like when I ask you, like, is it just that? I mean, like you, you're challenged by a lot of shit, you know, like it, like, uh, yeah. you know, like fi even finding a job is not like, you know, like you, you're not finding a job in the next, hours you know like you're gonna you know like hustle that job you know so for me it was um it was working at like a little sandwich shop getting paid like five dollars an hour which i i couldn't even afford to pay off my fines with that let alone save money to try to get my own place and i went back to the homeless shelter every day smelling like an italian <laughs> sub and uh <laughs> you know it wasn't really too pleasant but i was happy that was one of the happiest times of my life because it was, it was coming true for me that I could live and, and not get free. high, you know? Yeah. And that was like such, such an amazing concept to me. Um, for the first time in my life, I experienced that. And then there was a lot of grace for me that followed. Um, and this is just my belief, but if you put yourself in a position where you think God would have you or where a higher power would have you, uh, however you want to think about it, then things just kind of open yeah. up, man. You know, I, I kept, I kept going to uh 12 step meetings and, um, 
at first it was a guy that was like, hey, man, like, you know, why don't you keep coming to this meeting? There's some good stuff here. And um, I decided that I would need to make $100 a day in order for me to get out of the homeless shelter. And then the next week I go to the meeting where the guy said I should keep going there. And he's like, hey, you showed up again. He's like, I wanted to ask you last week, uh, you need a job? And I'm like, yeah, doing what? He's like, construction. I'm like, no, I don't know anything about construction. He's like, well, I'll pay you $100 to teach you, $100 a day. <laughs> you know, like the very number yeah. that I wanted. And then later on, that you know, the same person, he knew that I needed a car. And um, he called me and he's like, hey, man, you need a car? I'm like. Yeah, I need a car, but like I haven't even paid to get my license reinstated yet. Like, I can't afford a car right now. He's like, Who said anything about money? Just come get the title. You know, and the person just gave me a car, and like things started to open up. And I understand that that doesn't happen for everybody, but I do think that if we pay attention to details, um, you know, God reveals himself. And he does so for me in a little bit more of an obvious way because, you know, I'm not the brightest bulb in the bunch. But it was even clear to me to see like something was but working. It, it's not only that. I mean, like when you stop being a victim, when your ego gets out of the fucking way, all of a sudden, not only did good things happen, but you're you're perceiving those good things. You know, like you you're you're feeling them, you're seeing them. You know, like so so you know like. Sure enough, you know, like no, you know, like it's not everybody that gets given a car. I get it. You know, like you know, like you're absolutely right. What I'm saying is that when your ego stops being in the way of you thinking that you're a victim of the society, and you know, like you've gone through, and you know, like I'm at my fifty something recording now, and I've heard horror stories. You know, like to a point where you know, like you would even tell the guy at that time. Just fucking use, man. You know, like you know, like you, know, <laughs> you, 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 but you understand what I'm saying. You know, like what you know, I, like what, I where, do. It's it's such it's such horrific events and such you know like major and 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 just catastrophic trauma for young people that by the time they use and they tell you they were relieved, it was like fuck for fuck's sake, yeah. And you're like I would have been as well. You know, like, so, <laughs> What took you so long? (laughs) So, so for me, you know, like, um, you know, like, and then you hear later some people that are still using, victimizing and having such huge ego thinking that life has focused their attention and making your life miserable. I I don't know. 50 recordings and more later, shut the fuck up. You know, like, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, like, and, and it's not about, you know, like, it's not about being like, a, you know, like, uh, like being cold, cold hearted about this. It's just that I can't, you know, like, I, the, the, that's probably one of the main elements of recovery is stop believing. And I've, I've been, I've been in that boat myself, but, you know, like, stop believing that life is has that plan of making your life miserable. You're not that important in life. You know, like, you know, and I'm sorry, you know, like, it's all about that. You know, like, if you think that, you know, like, cause I used to, 
swear to God, you know, like, fuck you, man. You know, like, why, why? You know, like always that why thing, you know, like, why do I put, you know, like, where do I have a flat tire today? And why can't I find this? And why this? And why, why have I lost my keys? You know, like, and and you realize that you're like, really, you know, like you you didn't take care of your frigging tires and you get a flat. You sure fucking did get a flat, you know, like you, you didn't get, you know, like you didn't take care of it, you know, like, so, um, it's, you know, like you just said it, you know, like you, 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 you put your ego sideways and then, you know, like you, an egoistic person would have said, you know, like a hundred bucks, you know, like I'm, I'm worth way more than that. Why is it on only a hundred bucks? You know, where, when you, when you take it all aside and you open your heart to it, all of a sudden it becomes a blessing, a hundred bucks. That's precisely the number I had in mind for me to get out of truck, you know, like get out of that shithole or whatever, you know, like, so, um, for me, it's, you know, like, and, and sounds like a rant, I'm sorry, but you know, like I, I, I realized by even listening to your story, you know, like you, you're talking about, you know, like, you know, like huge trauma on top of, you know, like ripper, you know, like, important repercussion to your life you know like you you know like the 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 jail time and you know like the possibility of spending way more time than you did um for me it it just you know like you were talking about you know getting chills and it gives me chills just to think that even after all of that you look at that situation is like that's a blessing you know it's like fuck man you know like <laughs> you know like Absolutely, it's it's countless man. Uh, it's countless events of blessing, actually. You know, like it. So, um, yeah. You know, like I'm sorry. You know, like I, my my little interlude here, but uh. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it because you bring up some interesting points. Um, you know, I work at a recovery center, so all day, all I do is talk to people that are coming in that have problems one way or another. Um, and you start. Well, I start to realize that everybody has difficulties everybody has trauma everybody has things that affect them in, you know uh potentially negative ways and i start to see that like life is a tragedy it It can definitely be a tragedy the angle by which you take that photo right it it, you know life is in fact tragic everybody we know is going to die alex right (laughs) you know um but you have to well, I have to understand that being and being present and living is far better than the tragedy. And that gives me hope. You know, um, it's it's really something when people do what you said and like shake their hand at the sky, like, how could God do this? And it's like where people often ask me, like, you really think there's a God? And um, I don't know if there is, you know, I, I don't want to be egoic and say like i know everything because i i don't know anything really and i try to remain teachable but i do know one thing if you walk around and specifically act like there is no god and you're just defiant to the core life may not go as well for you as it could if you just act like there maybe is possibly something out there you know um and in a positive manner and if you see if you if you pay attention, you're gonna realize that there's very little coincidences in life. You know, like you know, like oh, it, yeah. sometimes you know, like you, you look at things happening, 
you know, like you just said it like a week ago, you end up, you know, like finding a way to probably get that letter to that, 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 that person, you know, like, so, so there's no, for me, there's, there's very little instances of co pure coincidence. Um, everything seems to attach one way to another, to something else, you know, like, so, um, yeah, I mean, like, so, so, um, but you need to pay attention. You need to be, and uh, you know, like I'm, I'm even my, you know, like not even myself, but I do myself sometimes just think that, you know, like it's, I'm, I'm either being punished or whatever, but you know, like it happens, you know, like you, 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 you wake up and like, yeah. fuck man, the past week has been <laughs> tedious and, you know, like heavy. And is it, is it me? You know, like, and, and, and you realize, no, you know, I'm not that important. It's not me. It's not, you know, like it's life. You know, like, and, and, and to your point, you know, like the tragedy and I, 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 I somewhat agree to it, but I think as well that, you know, like, it's, like I said, you know, like it's the angle on which you take that photo, you know, like some, you know, like, you know, like Absolutely. as you can say, it's a tragedy, you know, like I, I could answer that at the same time, it's the best thing that ever happens to a, a human being. It's life, you know, like, so <laughs> I, I, I truly believe that too, you know, like the, the idea of just being, yep. right? And just being alive is, is so much more valuable than the tragedy that is like, you know, having the experience of being. Because without the experience of being, you wouldn't have the tragedy of like. Yeah, you know, like uh, my, my sponsor send me, like every once in a while sends me like those positive thinking things. And anyways, you know, like he's, he's funny. Um, and he, he sends me like the worrying is a signal. It's an alarm signal of you not living in the present moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I loved it. You know, like, I'm like, okay, you know, like, I, I, I gotta be just over with either worrying or just taking even by the minute, as we say to most of the people, the newcomers, you know, like if it, you can't do one day at a time, do a minute at a time, um, and I think you need to spend your life pretty much living it a minute at a time. You know, like that's 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 how it is right now. And you know, like so, that's that's the way yeah, to live. You know, like and it's tough. You know, like uh, mortgage reminds you that you know, like by the end of that month, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. I actually just closed on a house. Um, I closed on the very house that my grandmother almost lost because of my addiction. Wow. Uh, I was able to, to purchase her home from her uh, in July of this past year. And it's the, the blessings of recovery are just amazing. So tell you me know. about the past few Things years uh, in Tani. Yeah, so I, I came home. I was in the homeless shelter. Uh, things started to go in a good direction. I, I, I got a little job doing construction, started to learn a thing or two in that that field uh i completed drug court i was on drug court i completed drug court um pretty easily actually and then i realized that i wanted to do something that i deemed a little bit more meaningful with my life uh so i went back to school and i got certified as a peer recovery specialist so basically i used my lived experience to help others uh who may be going through similar things to find recovery or maintain their recovery. Uh, and, you know, 
know, we go through a whole ethics class and everything like that. And there's a whole certification board. It takes a little while. But I was able to get that. I started working at a recovery center uh, 15 minutes away from my house. And now I have the, the opportunity to work in the courthouse where I was sentenced uh, and in the jail where I was housed, helping folks that are going through similar issues to what I went through. Um, actually, just last month, I was made the associate director of the Alumni Association for Morris County Drug Court here in New Jersey. Uh, so basically, I have the the chance to help individuals find employment, help individuals go back to school, help individuals with housing. Um, we really try to try to branch out and do all of the things possible for people in recovery and assist them in any way possible. I would say, on a personal note, three years ago, I met who is now my wife, Kaylee. Um, she and I met online she was here on a work visa from south africa she was going to be here for two years and she knew that so she wanted to find some friends online and i really was at the time if you can believe it alex just looking for a friend online uh, a female friend to talk to i had just gotten out of a relationship and she and i were talking and on her her bio uh, or her about me said something to the effect of Jesus is my superhero. I'm not here for hookups. And I'm like, Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I know something about that first century rabbi, you know, yeah. let's talk. And, um, she and I got to talking and little by slowly, we actually built a relationship and it was maybe the first relationship that I ever had with a female that wasn't based on anything physical. Um, and it was really, it was really a cool experience, and we both liked each other a lot. Um, so I actually flew out to South Africa for a little while and met with her folks, and then they came here. Um, all of these things, you know, flying internationally, spending time abroad, um, I never thought would have been possible. She and I got pregnant with our daughter Zoe last year. We got married right before that, June 28th. Congratulations. Um, 2018. Thank you. Uh, we had our daughter in December, December 19th, 2018. Little Zoe May, she's just like the apple of my eye, man. And I can't even believe that the universe entrusted me with this little beautiful, innocent soul, you know, like such a blessing, man. And she looks up at me in awe. And um, from all of that, I'm able to look back and, I don't forget, though, I don't forget that, you know, there was a time when I couldn't forgive my mother for the childhood that I had. And I, I played the victim, to your point, what you were speaking of before. I did that pretty well, man. And you know what? Like, people agreed with me. Like, I had a, a pretty a pretty rough upbringing, um, pretty much by anybody's standard. And I started to realize that it wasn't serving me. And what's even more important is I started to realize after I had a daughter that not only could I be like my mom, I could be worse. And if the circumstances were the same for me as they were for her, I could be just like yeah. her, you know. And I started to to wear the shoe on the, you know, how's that saying? You know, I wear the shoe on the other foot. 
anyways, the roles were yep. reversed. Um, and I started to, to think about it that way. I'm, you know, my spiritual advisor helped me to do that. And uh, I started to, to really learn a little bit more about compassion and, and sympathy. and Started to learn that, like, we're all humans here on Earth just trying to do the best we can with what we have and the conditioning that we were raised with. And I was able to actually go to my mother and make, like, a, a formal amends. Um, and I was able to tell her, like, listen, although we've had our differences and you may not have been the best mom, you know, by conventional measures, um, I understand that it was your conditioning that brought you to the point where you are and that you really didn't have much say in that conditioning. You know, your parents were the way they were and that taught you to be the way that you are. And I forgive you. And I understand that I could be just like you, if not maybe even worse. You know, it's totally possible that I could be like that to my daughter if I'm not vigilant um, and and don't live by spiritual principles and maintain a healthy lifestyle and recovery. And she and I had a, a very long talk, Alex, you know. How is she doing? And that was like one of the big... How is I'm she sorry? doing? My mother actually passed away this July. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, and so, you know, she never, she never lived by the spiritual principles or she loved, never lived by the means to find recovery. And, uh, she's no longer with us, you know, but because of this whole process and because of a 12 step fellowship, that's given me a network of men to speak to. Um, I was able to have that closure Can I be, and be in peace. I was able to I was, yeah, I was able to, to end that relationship in peace and she knows that I'm well. And she also knows that like, I understand she did the best she could with what she had. And most people do. You know, I would say that to all of your listeners, like to anybody that's troubling you, I highly doubt that they're malevolent and that they just mean evil. They're probably just conditioned a certain way that you may not understand. And that's what I learned about her, you know, and after learning that I can apply it to just about Absolutely. anybody. And there's nobody that I can really be upset with anymore. Yeah. You know, that's the beauty of it. Cause it's like, Oh, they're just, they're, you know, fragile and harmed individuals just like I was, you know, and they just may not know it yet. And I shouldn't be upset with them for that. And of course it, this sounds great as I'm saying it, but like, I still get oh, mad, yeah, you know, yeah. like I still have my troubles, but, um, it's hard to stay mad when you have that little bit of knowledge that like, I could be just as bad as the worst person I know, if not worse, if the circumstances were the same for me as they were for them. And it's, yeah, anyway, to your point, like it's very rare that someone shows up somewhere and say, you know what, I'm going to be half the best version of myself. You know, like, or a quarter of the best version of myself, you know, like they do whatever they can with what they have, you know, like, so some have, you know, like, and, and, you know, like, yeah, I mean, you know, like your, your testimonial is pretty much an example of, you know, like you, you, you came up with the luggage of the upbringing and, you know, like you did the best you could, you know, like, even though that sickness, you know, like the, the this abuse, the substance abuse is just makes us, you know, like not even the 10th of the potential we have, you know, 
even though we're quite inventive, but uh, creative and inventive, yeah. but uh, not not in a good way necessarily. Absolutely, um, and you know all of the work that's been done, the research uh, as far as like the the structure of the brain and how the chemistry shifts after a person's in addiction, it proves to us, man, that this is like, you wouldn't get mad at somebody who had diabetes or cancer. You know, you wouldn't get mad for somebody who had heart disease because their physiological response to something has shifted. It's very much the same with somebody that's in an active addiction. Yeah. Anthony, I have to thank you. Uh, It is, um, yeah, you know, like, those that listens actively to my podcast are getting fed up of me saying how much I feel blessed of being a nobody and reaching out and having, you know, strangers and people I don't know reaching out in, in return and saying that they would gladly accept to join in and participate in the podcast. But it is for me, it, it is flattering, humbling, and it is such a, an experience I'm going through. I started this in March. Um, and I'm, 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 yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm speechless and how much I'm enjoying this and I'm having a blast doing that. You know, like it's a, it's a great experience I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm living and, um, I have to thank you, Anthony, because you're part of that, you know, fantastic experience I'm living. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Alex. This is, uh, this has been an honor and a pleasure and, uh, I'm interested in checking out more of your episodes, man. I really enjoyed this. I would imagine that the rest of them are awesome. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) And don't, don't say you're a nobody, man. You're most certainly somebody. No, no, for sure. What I'm saying is that, you know, like I'm a pure stranger to all of the people that I reach out, most of the people that I've reached out to. And, you know, like sometimes it gets tedious and me, like, you know, like I, I use a lot of the social media and you end up, you know, like if you're not friends with that guy or that, that, that lady, you know, like you end up in the, almost like the undesirable or the, you know, like the, like the spam side of the inbox, you know, like, and so sometimes it gets tedious and just say, hey, hi, you know, like you, would you be willing to join in and, you know, I like, can, and participate and, and, and sometimes such as you and, and Steven and some others, you know, like it's, it's instant, you know, like they respond back for sure. You're like, I'm in, I'm like, holy how why you know i can and i'm i'm just i'm just flattered by it you know like i'm i'm just so thankful that people are accepting because i really and i've received feedback and testimonials of that later but i initially really thought that there was a need for so for people to listen to people's life story to to realize that there is hope that there is you know like there is um there is light at the end of that tunnel and there's, you know, like that there is, uh, on, on, on some of your, you know, like darkest moments, um, you may not see it, but there is something, you know, like there's something else there. That's why I always ask the questions, you know, like when were the seeds of that must not be what my life will look like forever. Um, that's, that's why I asked those questions because I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, like if you're still using and, you know, like, and my wife was great at telling me that, you know, like we, you know, like I, I shouldn't be thinking that people are looking actively at podcasts for recovering people if you're still using, but I've had later testimonials telling me otherwise, you know, like that people are either using or looking at ways to stop and they've tried fraternities and they've tried still 12 steps and could find their kind of their, their fitting you know like in in them blending in and 
um, that podcast actually helped them in some ways and kind of re either reconciliate with the idea of, of, of participating at meetings or just listening to it and realizing that they're not alone. Um, and you're, you're part of that now. So thanks a lot, Anthony. Really. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Alex. I it was a pleasure. It. And, um, yeah, have a good, have a good uh, evening. And, uh, is there a way we could find you? Are you, you know, like, a, do you, do you publicize? Do you, are you on, on social networks? Are you, you know, like, uh, or you know, like your, your therapy center is a private place. You know, like, I, I, you can, you can definitely find me at cares recovery okay. center in, in New Jersey. Um, or you can find me through Morris County drug court alumni association. Awesome. They thanks again. And, uh, We'll talk for sure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. Have a good night.